Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson, and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader. You have to bring people along with you, and you have to let them create a strategy with your guidance and say, these are the goals, and this is the timeline in which we wish to go forward. I think that leads to success. Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by Warwick Bartlett. Warwick's the owner and chief executive of Global Betting and Gaming Consultants, an independent specialist consultancy providing research, statistics, and data to the global gambling industry. Warwick founded GBGC in 1998 and has since been the largest and most credible international gambling consultancy in the world. Warwick's been involved in the gambling industry since 1966, running his family-owned betting shops. He's also the chairman of the Association of Bookmakers and a member of the Horse Racing Betting Levy Board. Warwick joins us today to share his insight as a leader and a human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, Warwick. It's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your organisation and what you're working towards, please? Yeah, um, we, uh, we we set up uh, around year 2000 and it's a specialist consultancy mm-hmm. that deals only with the gambling industry. Mm-hmm. And not just internet gambling, but every aspect of gambling, from casinos, mega resorts, uh, countries that are interested in gambling that wish to bring forward legislation, seek our advice, mm-hmm. and some of the major operators in the industry. Okay, fantastic. And as the leader of that organisation, what kind of challenges are you up against at the moment? Oh, um, I don't think we're up against any challenges, but our clients are. Okay. And they come to us with the challenges that they face. And most of those challenges are regulation. The government, well, most governments throughout the world don't really like their citizens to gamble. They are fearful of the social cost mm-hmm. of addictive gambling. Okay. And therefore, they've come forward with legislation which is quite draconian. Some would say they've gone a little bit too far that has materially affected the profitability of the gambling industry. Even though gambling, let's take the United Kingdom as an example, has dropped, addictive gambling has dropped from 0.7% to about half a percent. Wow. So the incidence of uh, addictive gambling is falling, Mm -hmm. but the government is still preoccupied with the harmful effects of of gambling. In some respects, Rightly so, because mm-hmm. addictive gambling can devastate people's lives and the families around them. Mm-hmm. So they have to have some measure of control over it. But the industry argued that it may have gone a little bit too far. Okay. And so as an organisation then, how many people are you? How many people are you leading? And what kind of people challenges are you up against? Well, we're quite small as an organisation. There are three of us based here mm-hmm. and there are three based in our office in Zagreb. Because one of the things we do, apart from consultancy assignments, we produce a lot of data for the industry. Um, So we keep a record of all the gambling that takes place in every country throughout the world, and we sell that data in the form of a global gambling report. Wow. And then so the team that you have manages the data? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so your journey into leadership, because you came up through the ranks, did you, am I right? In, did I read that you were originally a bookkeeper? I was a bookmaker. 
bookmaker, sorry. Yeah, yeah I was a bookmaker. Um, for a brief period of time, I was the youngest bookmaker in Great Britain. I, I got a, a gambling licence when I was 18 years of age. Wow. About three months after my 18th birthday. So I legally became a bookmaker. The magistrates were very concerned that someone of my age should become a bookmaker at aged 18. <laughs> where did that interest come from where did that passion come from because that is an early age to, to claim well, as the only one well it's a long story but uh, I had an operation on my foot and I was in such pain and my father came home and to divert um, my brain from the pain I was in he gave me a selection of um, horses that he backed that day and he said can you check these off on the evening newspaper to see if I've won. And he never seemed to win. And I thought, well, even I could do better than my father. And I had beginner's luck, and I started to pick some winners from the age of nine. And that followed me right the way through to the age of 16. And then I think I became too intelligent about uh, the selection of horses, and then I started to lose money. So my my early run of good luck faded quite quickly. (laughs) And is that when you thought you'd take a step to the other side of the fence? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, gambling had just been made legal in 1963. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, I got my first licence in 1966. And about six months after that, we, I opened the first shop. And we got up to about 18 shops. Wow. Um, uh, and I think, think we were employing about 70 people at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then we sold that business to Coral in 1984. And then I carried on with five shops. And I then went into the, uh, formed a trade association for independent mm-hmm. bookmakers called the British Betting Office Association, where we had 600 members. And then we merged with the larger association, which was called the Betting Office Licensees Association. And we became the Association of British Bookmakers. And I was chairman of that for 10 years. Wow. In terms of your leadership career then, did that did that happen by design or was it quite organic in that you had the successful one store and then you went to the second and the third? Was was that the plan or was it just success? Um, I was lucky, I thought, that, and this is good advice for anybody that's leaving university actually, is that pick an industry that's growing. Mm-hmm. And... In 1963, we had the founding legislation that enabled legitimate gambling. So this was a growth business from 1963 onwards. If you're leaving university and you want a career, you want to get into a business that's growing. So all the people that left university around year 2000, shall we say as an example, and got into tech, well, they have not looked back. Digital has been booming since year 2000. Uh, The same applies to people like my son, for example, who went into the oil industry. Um, uh, He went into the oil industry about um, the mid-90s. And he's he's been working for companies that have always made lots of money. And therefore, um, there's always been good pay grades. Mm -hmm. There's always been good compensation for the work that, that he's done. And this makes a difference because, you know, never work for a company that's continually losing money. You're fighting a war of attrition every day. Mm -hmm. 
and that you put so much energy into saving lost causes. Uh-huh. And I, I think it's great advice in terms of picking industry. I think if you are at that point where you're developing a career and you don't know quite know what you want to do, I think yeah. rather than trying to hanker down and, and decide which job you want to do, I think choosing industry is great advice. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. And, and from, from a leadership perspective then, do you think that there are characteristics that are common across all good leaders or do you think it's case by case or well it's interesting that since 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 you got in touch with me um i googled what makes a great leader mm-hmm. and about about eight or nine things came up and there's been so many books written on this subject yeah, yeah. but the list is integrity accountability empathy humility resilience vision influence positivity um, flexibility, all of these things. Yeah. I think it leaves out one of the most important things, and that is you've got to be able to present yourself. You've got to be able to stand up in front of a group of people, be completely congruent in what you say, and be completely confident uh, to carry people with you. Yeah. And um, when my kids left uh, university, the first thing I did was put them on a public speaking course. Because throughout your life, you're going to have to stand up and present yourself and your ideas, yeah. and you have to win people over. And that has held them in good stead, and it certainly worked for me as well. Yeah, so, great advice. So I think, I think that um, as far as leadership goes, it, it, in my lifetime, it's changed. It's gone from being quite autocratic. I'm the boss. Do as you're told. Get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, don't complain. Come back when the job's done. Yeah. Uh, that's 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 all over and done with, and thank God it is too. Uh-huh. Uh, you have to be inclusive these days, uh, and I think the Americans introduced that style of management to us, and we've seen how well they've done as a country and their various industries. You have to bring people along with you, and you have to let them create the strategy with your guidance okay. and then they've bought into it. Mm-hmm. They own it. And then you present it uh, to them and say, these are the goals and this is the timeline in which we wish to go forward. And I think that leads to success. I think that's the best way to go about it. Brilliant. And in terms of your, your leadership style and your approach to leadership then, is that born of an experience that you had earlier in your career or was there a piece of advice that someone offered you that shaped your style? Um, No, I think it was a question of learn by doing. And running your own business um, is a lot different to, say, chairing a trade association. Um, with a trade association, you're expected to stand in front of your members, uh, 200 or so people, mm-hmm. and uh, to set out the strategy um, going forward and the achievements you've achieved over the previous year. But when you come together as a board and as a group and you're chairman, you have to take into consideration everybody's thoughts uh, and everybody's ideas or complaints or opinions, whatever it is, you have to listen. And one of the difficult things about a trade association is it's invariably so that um, 20% of the members pay 80% of the subscriptions. Mm -hmm. 
So you do get a concentration of power, which is disproportionate to the wider membership. And it's balancing those things that is very important to take it forward. Because very often, if the big members don't get their way, they will break out and form another trade association. And this, okay. this happens right the way across uh, industry. Mm-hmm. So you have to manage that very, very carefully to make sure that the smaller members are not disenfranchised. So that sense of your 80% of your fees are paid by 20% of your yeah. um, members, I'm yeah. wondering if in a, in a sort of hierarchical organisation, there's, a, there's becoming more of a democratisation within organisations. And if you've got a hierarchical structure and you've got a, a leadership team or a management workforce, does that then correlate across to your, your leadership style with your employees in that everybody has to have that equity? It's a convoluted yes. way of asking a question, Warwick, but... No, <laughs> no, no. You know no. I mean. I, 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 yes, absolutely, entirely. I agree, I, agree, I agree with that, what you're saying. And I think... The classic example of that, I think, is um, in the 1930s when um, Winston Churchill was uh, just an, a member of parliament. And for several years, he was, he was pointing out to the British government, which was a conservative government at the time, mm-hmm. that there was a major threat from Nazi Germany. He says they were preparing for war and eventually they will invade this country mm-hmm. if they're not checked. And he was ignored. Uh, completely um, by the government of the day. And um, I've always thought that you should always listen to the person that disagrees with you because they might just be right and you might be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the classic example of that. Yeah, that's great advice. And is is there specific advice that you'd offer to someone that was looking to follow in your footsteps beyond the public speaking? Because I think that's a great that's a great tip for anybody. But is there advice that you would offer to someone that was either looking to follow in your footsteps, so right at the very start of their career, and with an eye on the the CEO uh, seat, or just about to take a step up into that leadership position? Is there one piece of advice that you would share? Yeah, you have to be completely honest, honest in your dealings with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, straightforward. Um, you have to be accountable. You have to, basically, you have to have good integrity. Yeah. Uh, in everything that you do, because we're living in a day and age now that if if you don't have good integrity, you will just get caught out. Mm-hmm. There's so many checks and balances that are available now. Yeah. The slightest misdemeanor. Um, you can find yourself in trouble, not necessarily with the authorities, but on Facebook and on social media. Mm-hmm. So um, there's, there's an old saying, isn't it? Gen- gentlemen should be wary of the company they keep. It's, well, it, now it's now ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think that is one of the, as much as, well, not get into a whole debate about social media, but I think that is one of the positives, that transparency that, that it's offered. Yeah. It, it should make us all more honest. and yes. uh, uh, But some of the stuff you see there, people just don't seem to care. Yeah. And in terms of leaders then, so you've mentioned Winston Churchill, if I can put my teeth in. Um, is there Are there other leaders, sort of past or present, that you particularly admire? And if so, why? Oh, I, I quite admired uh, Ronald Reagan, actually. Okay. Um, from, from the political point of view. Because everybody had, had written off President Reagan early on because he was a, a ham actor. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, and yet he was a great communicator. Um, he, he spoke very well. There was always a lot of content in his speeches. Um, he won two elections. And even in the United States, no one speaks bad about Ronald Reagan. So he left quite a mark, I think. Um, and, that, and that's Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Mikhail Gorbachev was a great leader, although his own people tend not to think so. But on the world stage, I thought he was a great leader. And is that, again, is that linked to communication style? Or? I, I think that was basically for what he achieved by taking, making the Soviet Union more of a democracy and more liberal. It's just hasn't quite worked out that way. Which <laughs> <laughs> is a shame. And, and so in terms of reading then, I want to ask a book. So I tend to ask all of our human CEOs, what are you reading at the moment so that we can obviously, I get from a selfish uh, point of view, I get to learn, but it's good to create a reading list of yeah. recommendations. Um, the book I'm reading at the moment is a book that was just given to me, Munich, uh, which um, uh, Netflix, I think, have, have just made uh, a film of. So okay. I was reading that prior to watching the film because I, I was quite, I'm quite interested in history from 1930 to 1950. So I was quite interested in that. Mm-hmm. I find these days it's hard to read a book from start to finish because there are so many distractions and there is so much news that you've got to read about in the gambling industry, in the finance industry. I read the Financial Times, Mm -hmm. I read the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, the Times. So I keep in touch with everything that's going on, plus all the various news sites that we subscribe to for the gambling industry. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have a great deal of time left to read books. The previous book that I read was Vaxxers by um, the team from um, Oxford University that had developed the AstraZeneca vaccine. Okay. That was a good book. Mm-hmm. In terms of the process that they followed or the challenges that they overcame, what was the content of it? I thought the entire thing was fascinating because this is a vaccine that was created by women, basically. Okay. Um, and quite quite a remarkable story that, um, you know, they've been heavily criticised for producing a vaccine that is not supposed to have been tested and so on and so forth. But when you read the book, the template for the vaccine was already there. And Professor Gilbert said that one of the reasons why it takes so long to develop a vaccine normally is because of funding. It takes a year to get funding, and if you fail at the end, you have to start again. Yeah. Uh, But funding was forthcoming from the government, Mm -hmm. which enabled them to speed up the process. And she lists all the ingredients in the vaccine uh, and the cause and what their purpose is uh, at the... um, in the book, which, which is which is quite interesting. So it's been a thoroughly tested vaccine and, and, and it worked when it needed to. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And um, with regards to the Global Betting and Gaming Consultants, so GBGC, what's on the cards for the next six to 12 months that you can share with us? What's, uh, what's on the horizon? Well, basically, we're continuing to sell subscriptions to our report mm-hmm. and win new clients. 
And what we're hoping for is that we get back to exhibitions and conferences Mm -hmm. because we used to attend four or five a year. Um, We used to go to places like Macau, Las Vegas, XL in London. Mm -hmm. Those are the three main centres where the gambling industry gets together, plus Malta, um, which is the e-gaming hub. Mm -hmm. And that's where we meet people, talk to clients, uh, take stands and uh, booths so that we can attract business. And we're hoping that uh, we come out of the current phase by February, March, of COVID and we start to get some semblance of normal life so we can get out there and sell our services. Fantastic. Well, I wish you all the best, but thank you for, for taking the time to be part of the podcast and thank you for sharing your leadership story with us. It's been a pleasure.